sure, uh, probably hundreds of thousands of sermons have been preached on this topic, several thousand in this church alone. But, we're, but uh, before I add to that number, um, I'm going to ask uh, you a question that I'd, I'd just love it if you would respond to. Uh, Derwin has got a mic. It's, he's going to run around and show his nimble-footedness. He says he's very nimble, uh, fleet of foot. So we'd like, we don't have a lot of time to do this, but uh, I'd like you to consider <clears throat> when you were first a Christian, how many of you uh, have been converted? Like you didn't grow up in the church, but you actually were converted, had a conversion experience. Put your hand up. That brought you to Christ, okay? Now, how many, keep your hands up. <clears throat> how many of you have had a recommitment type experience where you really, uh, where, where Christ really became real to you? Keep your hands up, keep your hands up, come on. You're all, okay, now God sees those hands, all right? Now you're all eligible to answer this question, all right? So the question is, <clears throat> what was an indication to you? How did you know that God was working in your life. Like, so you might have had, I don't want to put any, I mean, I could stand up here and talk about it, but that would be really boring. I want to hear, for, hear from you. What has God done in your life, uh, the, a change that he brought, so you knew that God was working in your life, in your heart, your spirit. Okay, here he is, fleet of foot, Pastor Derwin. <clears throat> we, we don't have a lot of time for this, right? So uh, be quick. The word became real. When I was reading it, it suddenly wasn't boring. It was very much alive. Ah, beautiful. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you. Come on, I saw those hands. Come on, guys. Kay's over. Oh, oh. He kept putting people who loved him in my life. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't ignore him anymore. Oh, nice. Uh, at one time, my uh, aunt asked my mother, so what is Kay worrying about now? Oh. And there's been a great big change in that area because now I can trust in Jesus and I don't worry <laughs> nearly as much. Wow. Well, that's freedom. That's pleasant. That's good. My greatest revelation was um, when it went from my head to my heart, he showed me how much he loved me. Oh, okay. Knowing the love. Beautiful. He answered seemingly unanswerable prayers that only he could do. Beautiful, wonderful. That's good. There's Dwayne way at the back. Now you got to put those feet to work. Look at that nimbility. I was walking down. <laughs> Absolutely. I, okay. I was walking down the road one day, and uh, God just revealed to me His grace, how uh, He'd been taking care of me, and how I just certainly didn't deserve any of His love. And uh, just recently, um, you know, over the years, I've wondered, why don't I have the joy of the Lord in my heart, I thought. And I was just reading in Scripture, and um, it was revealed to me that my mind has to be on Christ. And if it's on Christ, I will have joy in my heart. Beautiful. Beautiful. Joy. Others? like an auction if I see you twitch. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone sit very still. Here we are, Jen. Uh, at one point I told God that I was um, 
really tired of believing him because I didn't see him doing anything anymore. And I was walking down the road and I said, you know, God, if you're real, you know, you better tell me. And I, and I heard very distinctly in my heart at that moment, yeah, I am. And that's all I heard from him, but it hit me <laughs> so radically, I decided I'd better get, get my head back in the game. Mm. Did he actually say, yep? Did he say, yep? Yep, I am? That happened. It happened. Wow. In Hebrew, he said, yep. <laughs> I became a Christian when I was nine years old to get a ticket to heaven. And from there on, I just knew I was, I was brought up in a Christian family. But when I was 19, I sort of rededicated my life to God. And, um, but I still, it wasn't as what I'm experiencing now. When I came to Canada and came to Hillside, we had a Bible study in that little house over there. And uh, the leader was Brian Dresser. <laughs> and in that group, Sweet. I learned what the abundant Christian life was all about, where mm. God was in everything that I, in my mm. whole life and everything I did. So mm. that's where it really started for me. All right. All right. Following up from the statement, I was walking along the road one day and said, <laughs> Lord, why am I interested and are you real? I did exactly the same thing. I said, Lord, are you real? And if you are, show me. And nothing happened. And it, as normal life goes on, it went on. And I totally forgot about that question for 29 years. And then God brought it back and said, do you remember that? And then I looked back over 29 years and said, yeah, he's real. <laughs> he's been every step of the way. It was just absolutely amazing, but that time frame giving just a different contrast from the same question, mm -hmm. that yeah, God is absolutely there. So she got a quick answer and you got the long answer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank 29 you years for that. Long. That's good. That's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> God did for me a lot of things. Very, very on imagining things. He passed me through out the, a lot of difficulty. He kept my hand and mm. never quit it. Mm. Amen. Sung about that this morning. Thank you. All right, clock's ticking. Time's up. Thank you very much. But I, I know that God brought to mind things in your heart. You may not have been able to share them or felt up to it. Or, but hang on to those things. It's going to be important as we go through this morning. All right, as I said, <clears throat> one of the most inspiring passages of Scripture, uh, it's inspired both Christians and atheists to try and uh, follow it and try and build political, economic, church systems uh, that represent it or bring it to pass. Uh, but Luke never intended this account to be a program for social reform. I mean, his writings wasn't in, weren't intended for that or human government, or even a blueprint for Christian worship. Uh, we can learn things from it, and it points to things that were, are valuable principles, but that wasn't his point. His point was simply to give an accurate historical record of what happened. What happened in that early church? Uh, the acts, actions, what the practices were, what, and just simple uh, observation and a, an historical account. That 
was what he was writing for. That was his reason. And, that, and, and then we, we take it from there. <clears throat> Pardon me. God takes it from there. Um, so let's read it together. You know, this voice of mine, I don't know what quite is happening, but <clears throat> we're going to read it together. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to back it up a bit to the end of Peter's Pentecost Day sermon uh, in uh, verse 36, I believe, to start. And uh, I don't have all the, the supports for you, so if you don't have Bibles, you can put your hand up and get one from the ushers. Uh, or you use your phone, or whatever. Or else you really just have to listen, which would be fine too. It's what the early church did. So, Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, this was the Jewish crowd, right? They knew about Jesus' crucifixion. They didn't oppose it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your, of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With other, many other words, he, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Now we'll get to the passage we're going to focus on. And they, those 3,000 souls, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being sa saved. What an incredible image that is, eh? I mean, 3,000 new believers, men, I mean, there were women too, but men get focused on because of the culture of the day. Um, men with all their typical male pride, competitiveness, insecurities, being transformed literally overnight to be teachable, compassionate, faithful, humble, and generous. Now, this morning I'd like to share a bit about some words and images that struck me as I was reading this over the past couple of, uh, couple of weeks. Uh, but there may have been some things that jumped out at you as that was being read. And I want you to not forget that. Hang on to it. Talk about it in your small groups. Write it down so you don't forget. Um, the word of God is for you. It may not be something that I touch on this morning. Uh, but on we, on we go. How about beginning with the concept of being devoted? Being devoted. Uh, can you think of something to which you have been or are devoted? 
might be a cause, could be a, a person, could be a hobby, <laughs> a sports team. Uh, but the biblical word here has the connotation of, of steadfastness, of continuing in commitment to something or someone. Uh, whatever happened to these believers at Pentecost resulted in them making a firm commitment to sit at the feet of the apostles and obey the teaching they gave. John Stott put it this way. John Stott is a, a British pastor and theologian, well-respected. Um, put it this way. One might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school on that day, day of Pentecost, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. For the first Christians in Jerusalem, the fruit of their devotion was an astounding demonstration of love and unity. They were together. First, they were together physically. They met in the temple courts every day where they heard the apostles' teaching. Where else would they hear it except as a large group? And then in homes. They met in homes together where they ate, ate together and celebrated the Lord's Supper together and talked about what they'd heard, what they were taught, and how they could work it out. But they were also together emotionally and spiritually. They accepted each other, it seems, as fellow children of God, as part of the family of God, as they were taught. They were taught that they were Children of God, full children. And they cared about each other in a way rarely, if ever, seen on the face of the planet. They sold their possessions, goods, properties, pooled their resources, and ensured that no one was in, any, in need in any way. Again, from John Stott, he makes this comment. The poor had no shame, the wealthy no haughtiness, no sense of superiority. That's a beautiful thing. This is the true essence of the Greek word koinonia, okay, which we've historically translated in English as fellowship. Now, the room beneath us here, you may or may not know, is called the fellowship hall. And unfortunately, the word fellowship has become Christianese, hasn't it, for Christians church people getting together in groups to usually eat something sweet and spend some time together, drink coffee and tea. Um, and I don't mean to denigrate that experience of, of getting together as Christians. It's vital. And you all, it's so... Um, you, when you don't have it, it becomes all the more recognizable that you need it, you want it to have fellowship, have companionship in the Christian journey. But I'd be thrilled if when we heard that word fellowship, a richer image would spring to mind. The image that we're seeing here in Acts 2. Uh, Christians truly sharing life in all its fullness, with all its demands, all its struggles together. Uh, maybe we could for a while anyway, renew our minds by uh, naming our gathering places koinonia halls or koinonia rooms. Anyway. A quick word on this example of these Christians pooling their resources. 
and holding things in common. Now, Dave Wood's going to come in a couple of weeks and uh, speak on chapter 4 of Acts, and he's going to deal with this a lot more fully. Uh, but among the demonic spirits, which, which our culture is, our most, is most enslaved to, enthralled to, are uh, those that relate to money, consumerism, security, convenience, those spirits that play on that and bring us into bondage and bring God's people into bondage as well. And so I want to talk about it lest we allow these spiritual forces to go unchallenged. Okay? First of all, these new believers were simply following the example of Jesus and the disciples, weren't they? Jesus and the disciples left their homes and livelihoods, pooled their resources, lived by faith. So these baby Christians really were just following the lead of their leaders, the people, the apostles, the people they were learning from. Second, it seems they truly believed they were members of God's family together. When there's a person in need in a healthy family, at least we've got lots of dysfunctional families, probably all of us one way or another, but in a healthy family, a family that works, uh, when someone's in need, don't you pool your resources and help them out? So if a fire burns down a home, doesn't the family get together to help the people who've had a tragedy or, or problems? That's, I think of immigrant families. I worked with a fellow from Vietnam and, and others uh, for, for a time who was a, a refugee. And, and they had, he had purpose. His family had purpose. They worked hard to get other members of the family to come. To come. And I, I admired, like, oh, gee, you know, you've got a focus, a purpose in life that's bigger than just getting more stuff for me, right? That's what a family does, or supposed to do. And in some ways, these Christians were just acting like a family is supposed to act. Now, there are other fruits of this, in, of, uh, this uh, that these baby Christians evidenced. Uh, verse 46, day by day, tending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, <clears throat> praising God and having favor with all the people. The word translated glad there is a little bit, glad's a little bit weak, maybe. Uh, others translate that as exaltation, uh, exultant joy. Others have said uh, unfettered joy. And uh, so they're getting together, and they're joyous. Joy is evident in their gatherings. I might have experienced that somewhat as a young Christian. Uh, after I'd been, realized I'd been born again, I found out that a longtime friend of mine had also become a believer at about the same time. And so we had this amazing journey together through our first year of being Christians. And I'd go to his place on Friday nights, late... Uh, he, he, around midnight, he got off work from an afternoon shift. And we'd sit there and we'd talk about God, what God was doing, answered prayer, how we were changing. And it was this giddy gladness that, that, that overcame us. We just, it just got more and more exciting to think, wow, this is, this is real. This is true. So I think that's kind of what I was experiencing, whatever this word means. I think that's kind of what I was experiencing. 
The second word in that uh, passage, glad and generous hearts, uh, it's variously translated again. Uh, uh, sincerity of heart, simplicity of heart is part of it. Maybe a simplicity of heart that allows us freedom to be generous. Simple people are simple hearts. And what that speaks to me of is humility. Being, uh, have a simplicity of heart, not needing to uh, put on pretensions, put on, pretend in any way, just we are who we are and uh, we don't have to uh, pretend anything other than that. And that humility, really, it's evident throughout that whole, the whole passage. It's evident from their submission to the apostles' teaching, their obedience uh, to the teaching that's given, to their hospitality, financial sharing, and even to this winsome uh, childlike joy. Okay? Humility. I believe a primary contributor to this humility is their response uh, to the signs and wonders that were being done before their, before their eyes uh, in those days. Uh, central to Luke's snapshot of the early church um, is the sense of awe uh, that permeates the atmosphere of the gatherings. The word is, oh, I'm not, been, we'll just leave it at awe. <laughs> awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's verse 43. Now, no details are given in this place as to the exact nature of those signs. Later on, uh, it's uh, said that there were healings of every sort that were, were occurring. And I think we can assume there were other, other wonders and signs, prophetic utterances, words of knowledge, where people declare things about you that you had no, they have no way of knowing, but... You know that God has revealed it. Uh, deliverance from demons, miracles, really probably a sampling of all those types of signs and wonders that are recorded elsewhere in the book of Acts. Uh, that was happening. That was going on on a regular basis. Whatever occurred, those signs and wonders produced overwhelming awareness that God, Jesus himself risen, was very much alive and well, and that he was near. And everyone, the Bible says, and it seems to mean believers and non-believers alike experienced this sense of awe that, uh, that permeated their, the, the gatherings. If you'll allow me, I'll give you a, an example of what I mean. Uh, I've told this story before, I believe, so uh, some of you can go to sleep if you like uh, for a few minutes, and I'll wake you up again, but... In 1991, uh, back when the earth was cooling, my new bride and I, this beautiful young woman over here to my right, uh, had the privilege to, uh, to travel to Argentina to, uh, to attend a, a conference on evangelism. Well, why Argentina, of all places, to go to a conference? Well, the fact is, it was in the middle of a revival of Christian faith that no, you, neither you nor I, even having witnessed it, uh, can really comprehend. I mean, we were there. We saw it. We saw a church of 120, so we attended a church of 120,000 people. They had services around the clock, 
20, uh, yeah, 23 hours or 22 and a half hours out of every day, they had, they had service. And there were people lined up on the street outside uh, for each one of those services. And in every one of those services, the pastor would get up and say a few words and then start praying for people. And there was healings and deliverances, people being converted. Every single service, uh, 11 a day, I think it was. We heard from pastors of churches of 90,000 uh, members, 60,000 members, and every other thousand between, <laughs> between, zero, or between one or two and, and 60. Um, and the revival's well documented. You can Google, Google it if you like. It's still happening, actually, today. And we don't hear about it because it's not happening in Vancouver. But it's still going on. And... Uh, when, in, when it began in 1983, there was less than a half a percent, or about a half a percent, half of one percent of, the, of Argentina's population was evangelical Christian. Uh, today, it's almost 10 percent. Uh, something like f from 200,000 to 4 million pe people. And it's still, according to Operation World, uh, still carrying on. We visited the city of La Plata, which is a city of about a million people. Uh, not too far from Buenos Aires, uh, at the invitation of their ministerial committee, same type of group that Derwin has been the president of in, around here in the Tri-City Ministerial for the last number of years. Uh, same sort of deal. And they invited us to come and, and they would, so that they could tell us their story. And uh, prior to this revival, they, uh, a big church in Ar anywhere in Argentina, but a big church in their city was... Well, 50. If you, if you broke the 50 mark, you were a monster, right? And uh, just a few dozen little, little gatherings. And they were hostile to one another. They were, uh, you know, Baptists versus Pentecostals versus Mennonites versus Presbyterians and everything in between. They just, nothing happening. And they, anyway, they, they dutifully gathered as Protestant pastors in this city and uh, they received a letter from a man named, an evangelist named Carlos Anacondia, who they'd heard about. He was, he was a Billy Graham-type figure in Argentina, only more so. Uh, so they'd heard about what he was doing, and he asked, could I come, could I have your blessing to come to your city? Well, they couldn't decide. Uh, all of a sudden, they, well, they argued back and forth. And, and while they were par paralyzed by their analysis, they... They, uh, he just came. He came, set up shop in an empty lot, and started preaching. Uh, well, a, a feature of Carlos Anacondia's ministry is miraculous healing of every sort uh, you can imagine. Uh, cancer, blindness, heart disease, sexual brokenness, you name it, people were healed from it. And, uh, and those people, like the, <laughs> like the new Christians in this book, or this passage we've been studying, asked, uh, well, what do we do now? And what do we do? I'm healed. Jesus is alive. What do I do? And he said, you go to the Protestant church nearest you and learn more about Jesus. Let's turn, just learn, learn about Jesus. So the uh, Protestant pastors of La Plata showed up on Sunday morning and their churches were not big enough to hold the new converts that were coming. 
they were just, they couldn't even get in the door. And he says, I was healed. He, he told me to come and listen to you, to be taught by you. Uh, their congregation swelled <laughs> to hundreds, literally overnight. Uh, the church in La Plata, during that one month of Carlos Anaconda's ministry, uh, grew by 50,000 new converts. Now, what was the response of those La Plata pastors? Well, it was a, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. They repented. They repented of their small-mindedness. They humbled themselves before God and one another. They asked forgiveness of God and one another. And they pledged themselves to work together to incorporate this harvest. And they failed to incorporate it. They weren't organized. They couldn't do it. And there were, there were pastors who'd been Christians for four months preaching on an empty, on empty lots to congregations of four and five hundred. That's what was happening. Um, but these pastors who were actually equipped uh, pledged themselves, okay, we're going to do this right. And they were, at the time we were there, they were preparing to have another uh, camp evangelistic campaign where they would be ready to incorporate uh, the harvest. The point that I'm trying to make here is that these pastors were completely humbled in the face of the miraculous work of God. They just, oh Lord, what have, what have we been doing? And their response to that turned their ministries, their churches, upside down for good. Right. I think for a moment about the apostles prior to Pentecost. Focus on Peter, if you like. Think of how he was humbled. Right? The events of the crucifixion, denying Christ. And then even his restoration was humbling, was public. Jesus saying, okay, Peter, feed my sheep. <laughs> you blew it back there, but I want you to do this now. It's public. It was humbling. But each of the apostles had failed Jesus as badly as the others. Each had fled in fear and had been slow to believe that Jesus was actually risen from the dead. And they had, they'd all had their weakness and folly displayed publicly for all to see. But this humbling, down to the deepest roots of their being, they'd been humbled, was only preparation of heart for what was to come. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they were fit to be transformed and to be vessels of God, God's, vessels of God's very presence and his power. I was, uh, the version I read from today is the English Standard Version, and, and uh, so it may be a little different from some of your other versions, so I don't see a lot of Bibles flying around here. Um, but um, it says, it says um, many signs and wonders uh, took place through the apostles. Okay, the Greek, I'm sorry, the, the Greek most literally says many signs and wonders through the apostles took place. It doesn't say that the apostles did signs and wonders. 
Okay, you will read that in some of your versions. And if you slough it over, okay, yeah, that's kind of what it means. Uh, but it's not what it says. It says, through the apostles, wonders took place. And the Lord prepared them for this role. And certainly they were the agents of God's working. But neither in their mind nor Luke's mind as he wrote this were the apostles doing the miracles. It was God doing the miracles through the apostles. You see that difference? Am I being too picky here? Really, I'm asking. It's subtle, but it's important. In the same way, no less than the apostles you're uh, here, God has prepared good works in advance to do through you. He wants to work through you. He's preparing you to do those things that he has designed you to do with him and through you. He wants to bless the world through the gifts and talents and experiences that he's given you. At any rate, the first fruits of the apostles' ministry was this massive kindergarten of baby Christians who were finding favor with everyone as they expressed the joy, freedom, kindness, and generosity of their newfound faith. And as they did so, they helped. As they lived that out, they helped rather than hindered those who were coming to the faith daily. Now the question that all of us face when we read this passage, <clears throat> and the one I want to put to you now is this. What would it take for you, for me, to reflect those same graces in my life? What would it take, okay, let's go right to it. What would it take for you to pool your resources with other Christians in, the com in a common cause for good? What would it take? Well, let's look at how it happened. According to Luke, it began with the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the Peter's hearers. It started with a work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They realized, oh, Lord, uh, we were responsible for crucifying Jesus. They were cut to the heart. They got it. Not through Peter's brilliant exposition, but by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought that to them. And they say, what, do we, what shall we do? And they were desperate to do whatever it took to get right with God. I was reminded of Lynn Dietz and his sermon a few weeks back. Um, commenting, uh, well, he quoted Billy Graham who said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of sin. It's the Holy, Holy Spirit's job to do that. It's God's job to judge. It's my job to love. And he, through hard experience, had learned that if the Holy Spirit wasn't working in people's hearts, then there's no point in him even trying. And he, in his latter years, he 
wouldn't come to cities that didn't have a unified prayer effort going long before he ever arrived. How else do you get the whole, depend on the Holy Spirit except through prayer? Ask him, Holy Spirit, you've got to do this thing. And I love that. I actually love that. <laughs> that I, don't, I can't convince anybody to become a Christian or to obey, follow Jesus. Uh, I can't do any of that, no matter how hard I try. And there's freedom in that. So where does that take you? Well, pray. Pray. Pray that God would do what only he can do. What did it take for the first Christians to be transformed into this community of an unbelievable, beautiful community of devotion and love? It took a work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm glad we're actually talking about the Holy Spirit a bit <laughs> these last few weeks. We, we don't very much, uh, but I'm certainly glad that we do. We talk about, uh, for a long time, I... Uh, you know, we're, we're a Christ-centered church, which is great, but when we kind of forget that the Father was the Father's idea that Jesus came because he loved us. So the Father is a good, good Father as we sing. Yeah, uh, but, and so we can focus on that, but, but the, the Holy Spirit, mainly, primarily maybe because of his role, but Jesus, as Derwin taught on last week, uh, it's better that the Holy Spirit is here bringing the Father and Son right to us. It's better for us the way we are than if Jesus was here himself. So this, uh, and, and we'll go back to, to Peter in, in his sermon. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And while the forgiveness of sins is a, you know, what kind of a gift is that? It's, an, it's glorious. It's almost like Peter's saying here, yeah, but the best news of this good news is that you get the Holy Spirit. And each one of you, and that's uh, each one of us who follow, get the Holy Spirit. Now, Derwin uh, made every effort last week to underscore the importance of that. Uh, and I hope he succeeded. I don't think it can be overstated. We'll never be able to drum up a facsimile of the Acts 2 church by our own efforts. Both Christians and atheists have tried and failed. It's not going to happen. We're too human, way too human. And we don't know precisely how God wants to work through us individually or as a congregation here. Perhaps we'll be a, a complete reflection of this Acts 2 church, or maybe he'll do something completely new and different. But our hope is this, and it's a sure hope. It's a sure thing. God, the Holy Spirit, will never stop working in us to conform us to the beauties of Christ's character. He will never stop. He'll always be at work. We'll never going to be uh, not have him working to bring something more beautiful out of our lives. Every Christian 
has tasted that work of the Holy Spirit. That's what I was doing at the beginning here. <laughs> reminding us. Oh, yeah, that's what. He's been at work. I know that he works in me. The Holy Spirit is the architect and builder of our source. He's at work right now. He's got a plan for you. He's building it out right now. And uh, I just encourage you. Allow him his rightful place. Allow him to shape and mold you. And it can be difficult at times to cooperate with this, as Ben pointed out uh, a few weeks ago on Marvelous sermon on faith, <laughs> growing in faith. Um, and uh, it can be painful, as it was for Peter, as we're humbled and prepared. But the reward is priceless. He will display the beauty of Jesus through you, just as he did through those first Christians that we see the snapshot of in Acts 2. So I'm going to ask you, what's the Holy Spirit at work on in you today? <laughs> He's working. What is he doing in you? Where is he pushing your buttons? <laughs> Where is he calling you forward? One of our pre-service prayer meetings earlier this year, the image came to mind, uh, one of the prayers, um, of, of our church having a, a sliding glass door, right? And Jesus was on the outside. Now, we could see Jesus. Oh, we could, we could look out the sliding door and, say, and we could describe him uh, very accurately, what he was like, we could, we could, you know, tell everything about him, even what he was doing, but he wasn't, the door was not open so he could come in. He was on the outside. Now, that could be a word for the church leadership here. It could be a word for individuals among us. Uh, in any case, for a serious Christian, that should be a disturbing image. We do not want that to be said of us. So, I think it should, we all should pray, Lord, Lord, here, I open the door. For you to come in. I'm opening that door. I don't want to be separated from you. Whatever's keeping me from that, from doing that, taking that step, please take it away. And that's what the Holy Spirit's doing, <laughs> isn't he? Addressing those things that keep us from opening that door. I just invite you to pray with me now. Uh, if you will. Holy Spirit, it is uh, just a remarkable thing to be able to reflect upon you today. We want to honor you and the work uh, that you're doing 
within each one of us in bringing Jesus and the Father to us. Um, Lord, Lord, who is the Spirit, do your work in my soul that the glory of Jesus might be seen in and through me. I thank you in advance for what you're going to do. Amen. Now, some of you may, may uh, wish to have uh, received prayer as you surrender to the Holy Spirit this morning. Some of you may uh, want that. Please come. Please come. We'll pray with you. Be delighted to do that. Derwin's going to come and... Yeah. I, uh, I remember the, the prayer meeting and it was, I think I shared with Dave this week that that image of the glass or it was actually plexiglass that uh, the person shared. It was actually plexiglass, which I don't know if it is different, but um, it was like we could see Jesus, but we couldn't hear Jesus or, or some couldn't. And, and my, my sense has been, as we've thought about that image, is that some of us have sheltered ourselves. We, we're prepared to go so far, but we really maybe are afraid of experiencing God. And uh, so, uh, as I've been saying the last couple of weeks, uh, let's not let fear rule the day or rule our lives. Um, let's trust that God has good in store for each of us as we open up our hearts and lives to him and trust him. And uh, so, again, uh, some of you have been praying in your small groups. I heard of one small group that where everyone prayed for every other member of the group that they would be filled with the Spirit uh, I, would, I would encourage you to keep on asking and seeking and knocking that God would show up in your life in a very real way. God wants to be real to you. And it might take 29 years and then some looking back, or he might be waiting for you to say, like Jen said earlier, are you there, God? And he's ready to say, yep, I am. Some of you need to hear that. And uh, that happens by the Spirit of God. Yep, I'm here. Wow, I just, oh. Just sense he wants to lavish you with, with so much of his life and presence. And I, I, I would love to just see you leave here with joy as you go. Sincere and glad hearts. Ah. Before we, uh, before we leave, we got cake, and we want to bless, uh, you know, we got the refugee thing happening, but we got a family that's getting married, Noel and Sarah, come on up here, they're getting married, I want to pray for them, we're going to celebrate their, their marriage in a couple Saturdays by refurbishing the house next door, that's what we're going to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of us are actually going to come to your wedding. Um, and uh, if you want to bless them, there's, there's cards back there. If you didn't even, if you didn't even bring anything, you came empty-handed, uh, feel free to grab a, a, an empty card there, put your name on it, shove a, shove a larger bill from your billfold into that, and uh, bless them. Larger bill, you heard that, didn't you? Larger bill. Might be a 10 for some of you, but uh, you picked the larger bill. And uh, bless these guys as they uh, launch out. Uh, Noel's been part of this church family for uh, many, many years. Uh, his, his family's been 
so involved here, and uh, he's actually um, moving to Sarah's church in Abbotsford. Sarah, I think there should be some apologies given on your behalf, like we keep sending off the guys to the girls' church. That's not fair, Lord, and we'll bless you anyway. Um, we're excited for you, and uh, so, so Noel's been involved very significantly in our youth ministry, and he's been very involved in our sound ministry, and uh, let's, uh, let's give this guy a, a thanks with your applause just for all that he's done serving over the years. Noel has had such a willing heart, and uh, just to, he's poured into my boys. He, he led a home group, uh, a small group with uh, one of my sons, and uh, have really appreciated his input there, and, and uh, we just are excited about what God has in store for you. So let's, can we pray a blessing over these two? Uh, Lord, we talk about showers, Lord, wedding showers, and we just would love to see you shower your life and power and joy over this, this young couple and their upcoming marriage. Lord, uh, you have great things in store for them, and uh, you, you just are going to use each of them in each other's lives in such uh, unique ways, powerful ways, God. Would you, would you truly lead them and guide them into all that is good, all that you want for them, Father, I pray. And uh, just as they put all kinds of work and, and care into uh, their, their wedding celebration, which we pray would be good, we, we pray that they would be freed to put the same kind of work into their relationship in the years to come, and uh, that you would cover them and guard them and, and keep them in the palm of your hands. Lord, we bless them this morning uh, and give thanks for them. We do these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give these guys a hand. Congratulations. Well, everyone, you stand up. We're going to go, go get cake in just a second. It's back there today. Uh, refugee walls over there. So stand up and receive the benediction. May you grow with a sense of increasing awe at the works that God is going to do through you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.